Welcome to um, the substitute for RMIT Goa this evening. We're in Collide Theatre. And thank you all for coming from the gallery to here. The reason that we've changed is we had an overwhelming number of um, indications of attendance, some 80 plus RSVPs. And we knew that we couldn't actually fit you comfortably in the space that we'd allocated in the gallery. So we thought better we take an executive decision, <laughs> relocate here, but of course it creates some sort of logistical complexity, at least initially. I'm Suzanne Davies and I'm the director of RMIT Gallery. And I think it applies to this space as well as the gallery. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that, that this, this, what is it, theatre, used to be theatre, is located on the land from which the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation are the traditional people. And we recognise the cultural and historical significance of this land to these people. Tonight, our esteemed panel, Dr Elizabeth Gower, artist, Dr Leslie Cadold, sitting next to Elizabeth, Sushi Das and Dr Megan Tyler, will be discussing women's power struggles across different generations and cultures including sexual violence and intimate partner violence, the need to please and the ways in which the arts and the digital sphere provide an arena for women's voices to be heard. We planned to do this exhibition at the time, well, it preceded, in fact, the very high profile around issues of domestic violence. But as we spoke with Elizabeth Gower, whose work is... Um, a particular focus in the exhibition, we realised that this was an opportunity to explore a range of issues that are very, uh, can be quite complex and are often simplified in the public space. And so we thought we would take this opportunity to hear a number of, of well-informed, articulate voices to speak to different aspects of women's relationship to power. All these issues are explored poetically in the work of Elizabeth Gard. And you'll see resonances through, through other works in the exhibition. The format tonight is that each speaker will have 10 minutes, followed by 10 minutes of uh, question and answer. And members of the public are invited to uh, ask whatever you wish. We'll have two roving mics and uh, the staff will be, our Mighty staff will be here to have them around. The session is intended to conclude at 6.30, though it may run a little bit over, and we invite you to join us in the gallery afterwards, if you wish, to view the exhibitions. I have in my notes the instruction to hold up the catalogue. It's in bold. <laughs> This is the catalogue for He Loves Me, He Loves Me Not, featuring a thought-provoking and very beautiful essay written by Helen MacDonald, and it's available on sale in the gallery. <coughs> now finally, and this is very important as well, the discussion is being um, recorded as a podcast and filmed as a video, <coughs> so we have two 
two active cameras <coughs> to my left. They'll be on YouTube and available from the RMIT Gallery website. And we ask you please, please now, to turn the sound off your mobile phones. Would you just do it? <laughs> Don't think you haven't got your phone with you because I bet you have. Fiddle in your bags and just turn off the sound, please. Because it becomes for us a bit of a challenge subsequently. I'm delighted to introduce our panel, Elizabeth Gower, an award-winning artist who teaches at the Victorian College of the Arts, University of Melbourne. She has a PhD from Monash University and an MA from RMIT, so we'd like to claim her <laughs> as an alumnus. And she's exhibited internationally in Lupus solo and major exhibitions. Her work is held in many notable public collections, state collections, New South Wales, National Gallery of Australia, National Gallery of Victoria, as well as numerous private collections, both in Australia and, in, and internationally. <coughs> Elizabeth is one of our most um, substantial senior artists who continues to expand her creative practice. Next to Elizabeth, as I indicated, is Dr. Leslie Carroll, who's an ethicist, educator, researcher, and author, and public presented, presenter on values-driven leadership, gender equality, and <coughs> respectful relationships. She's an adjunct associate professor in the Department of International Business and Asian Studies at Griffith University, and senior lecturer in gender leadership and social sustainability research at Monash University. And you've probably seen her as, as I have, or have, on uh, ABC TV's Moral Compass. And she's an occasional columnist for The Age. Now next to Leslie is Sushi Das. Sushi is an award-winning British-Australian journalist of Indian origin who's worked at The Age for more than 20 years, where she's currently opinion editor. She's worked in various roles in The Age. You've probably read her in any number of these positions, including news editor and columnist. At least you will be familiar with her byline. Her work has been recognised with two Melbourne Press Club Quill Awards, including Best Columnist. Her memoir, I love this, her memoir, Deranged Marriage, is published by Random House and is an affectionate memoir of growing up in London in the 1970s in an Indian household and avoiding an arranged marriage. And next to her is Dr. Megan Tyler. She's Vice Chancellor's Research Fellow in the RMIT School of Management. Her work examines feminist theory, sexuality and violence against women with the aims of challenging and changing social constructions and preconceptions. She's the editor of Freedom Fallacy, The Limits of Liberal Feminism, which examines the rise of pop feminism. Please welcome our first speaker, Elizabeth Gower. Thank you. Um, I'm going 
going to speak from um, the perspective of an artist and I've just uh, written down some things I was thinking about when I made the work and my intentions for the work. Uh, can you all hear me? Do you need this, that microphone a little bit? It's, like yeah. organ test. it's being tested. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he loves me, he loves me not. I've written this phrase as a representative of and on behalf of women across cultures who are conditioned to seek approval, permission and sanction from the generic he. In the work I see the he as representative of the male presence in the form of the father, the brother, the boyfriend, the lover, the husband, the son, as well as the various concepts of a male deity. But the he can also be read more generally as the colleague and the boss, and in my case, the art critic and the audience, although perhaps not this audience. <laughs> he loves me, he loves me not. I belong to a generation of women who were initially brought up to seek approval and validation for their behaviour from a male. But later, as an artist and as a feminist, I resisted and reevaluated this conditioning. Even so, like many women, at times I find myself seeking acknowledgement from the other. The person who you compare yourself to, value yourself in relation to. And I see this person as a generic he, because our society continues to maintain many patriarchal systems and power still rests in the he. He loves me, he loves me not. The quality of women's lives, whether they get equal pay for equal work, whether laws are changed to protect them, whether their voice is heard, still tends to be in the hands of the he. The work therefore represents a continual pondering, a back and forth analysis of the consequences of our actions, appearances, opinions that could determine whether he loves me or he loves me not. This continual appraisal is another way of questioning, am I valued, am I, going, am I doing the right thing, am I safe, should I be doing things differently? The phrase is written 21,319 times, which I calculated as the number of days I have lived from the age of five to the date of the exhibition. I remember quite vividly being five and becoming aware of my relationships with others in the family and at school and realising that it was better to be liked than not. For example, at school I soon learnt that if you spoke out of line or didn't do as you were told, you'd be smacked on the hands or the back of the legs with a ruler. So I think the he in this time was definitely the school teacher. At this stage I also became aware of my father as a distant member of the family and craved his attention. So calculating the number of days from this age coincides with growing awareness of the world and one's place in it. He loves me, he loves me not. But the work is not about my life or my generation per se. I believe it addresses the historic battle for recognition but also an ongoing assessment by each consecutive generation of women. The repetition of the phrase on such an expansive scale therefore symbolically represents a lifetime of re-evaluation and wavering, as well as resilience and resolve, which I think represents the mindset and experience of many women. 
He loves me, he loves me not. <coughs> After the second wave of feminism in the 60s and 70s, which had brought about major shifts in consciousness, the comment, we don't need feminism, premised on the belief that everything was fine, became quite a prevalent sentence. But over the last decade or so, there's been a definite re-evaluation of feminist theory and practice, and young women are now considering that maybe all isn't fine. I believe this is partly due to a response to reported increases in domestic violence, date rape, recent attacks on women in the streets, that remain manifest in our culture, and an awareness that women in other cultures are still struggling to attain the very basic of human rights. He loves me, he loves me not. Many women's sense of self-independence and decisions about their own lives continue to be determined within a predominantly patriarchal system, which inevitably, control, inevitably controls behaviour, dress code, opinion, employment, and what a woman's role should or shouldn't be. Although in Australia women have gained substantial rights and freedoms, the pressure to conform to stereotypes of body image and youth in some ways can be more insidious. He loves me, he loves me not, takes on other meanings in this way. Desiring or complying to the current acceptable modes of femininity and womanhood and definitions of attractiveness is in fact indicative of a continuing search for approval from the generic he which the popular media and big business, of course, tend to promote. Women, therefore, tend to overanalyze, um, and I speak for myself here, um, and question their own worth more so than men, at least in different ways. And women often go to great lengths to attain approval and validation. Consider, for example, the increase in cosmetic surgery, weight loss industries primarily supported by and promoted by female customers, to the female customer. He loves me, he loves me not. In some societies, the behaviour and choices available to women are more restrictive and require cultural authorisation and consent. In fact, in many cultures, a woman's life itself can be determined by whether he loves me or he loves me not. In this context, the phrase has more negative connotations in which the complex process of seeking approval and deferring to authority can lead to or signify the trauma of domestic instability and violence. So often we read that women don't leave an abusive relationship because they hope things will change, they blame themselves, they forgive, but often primarily because he said he loves me. It's a very complex and endless repetitive cycle and the work identifies this dilemma. The meaning of he loves me, he loves me not is therefore a lot broader than the romantic um, love that the premise is usually associated with. There is an obvious reference to the game of picking petals off a daisy or chanting the phrase he loves me, he loves me not to determine devotion and rejection or rejection. But this game of subtraction results in an answer of sorts, based on chance. By contrast, the RMIT installation, 
The relentless addition and repetition of the phrase implies that there is actually no answer to be found. He loves me, he loves me not. The monumental scale of the work, there's 20 panels, each of them are six metres high, are rolled up currently to about four metres, amplifies the physical endurance associated with the task the repetitive, cathartic, contemplative, burdensome, emotionally draining and physically tiring process of writing, he loves me, he loves me not, 21,319 times, also alludes to atonement for a misdemeanor, penance, or perhaps a form of exorcism. In addition to this, I have written the phrase in pencil, which can easily be erased and contributes to the impermanence of the work and by association, the futility of the process of continually seeking an answer that is unanswerable. Why would somebody do this? Why are we doing this? Why do we keep pondering the same immeasurable question over and over and over again? Why do women continually seek recognition and validation from the genetic? the generic he. I've had a lot of conversations with people uh, since the show's been up and it actually has generated almost every person I speak to um, tells me um, a story from their life or from their friends that is pondering this question over and over and over again. Why do we keep doing this? Why does it matter? So hopefully in a way this might be sort of a bit self-defeating for an artist to say this but I hope actually the question is futile the, the process of doing this so many times will actually lead to um, an answer I guess in a way that should be why do we care um, shouldn't we just move on now Elizabeth and I didn't talk before we um, each wrote our respective um, submissions, but I feel like I'm about to pick up just just where you left off. So I'm going to try to um, look at he loves me, he loves me not, and, and answer that question a little bit about why do we care. Um, he loves me, he loves me not. 21,915 times. 21,915 times. 319. Oh, 319. Really? That's okay. Am I dyslexic? Do you hear? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, whatever the number is, for every day that Elizabeth has lived asking herself whether others love and approve of her rather than whether she likes, believes, and approves of herself. He loves me, he loves me not. 18,615 times for every day I have lived asking myself whether others love, approve and believe in me rather than feeling it is enough that I love, approve and believe in myself. This similarity between myself and Elizabeth is not happenstance but the common thread that binds us as women. Not because we were born female, that is a question of biological sex, but because we were made female, which is a matter of gender. One is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Simone de Beauvoir wrote in The Second Sex, arguably the inciting text of the second wave feminist movement. Second wave Western feminists saw male bias 
and discrimination as key explanatory mechanisms for women's unequal status in society. Such sexism used to be overt. It was justified on the basis that for women, biology was destiny. It was said that our reduced social status, our reduced earnings, and our reduced opportunities were the inevitable and unavoidable outcome of our physical, moral, and or intellectual inferiority to men. And my background's in philosophy, and you can go all the way back to the Greeks to find lots of stuff about women's intellectual inferiority and how that's grounded in biology. And some of you may be familiar with the idea that you know, women's wounds were part of the reason their brains couldn't function well, and it was part of the reason they ought not to get an education, as was because it would impact their real destiny, which was to give birth to children. So these ideas have been going along for a long time in intellectual history. Because human biology was believed to be unchangeable and unchanging over time, the natural inequalities that arose from it were not only justified, but the argument went they were actually unchangeable. They were just the way things were because our physical bodies were unchangeable, could not, could not be amended. Now since then, of course, we've had lots of different um, understandings come to us, some of which I just find amazingly um, interesting and sort of as interesting as incomprehensible because I'm not a scientist. But for instance, we've had things like epigenetics come along, which explains to us that in fact biology is not changeable, that we don't only evolve, but we evolve actually quite rapidly in response to our environment. Um, but I guess what I'm going to focus on is the explanations we've had over time, and many of them I'm actually old enough to remember myself, about why women's were unequal, why we were um, denied the opportunities men had, and why as time's gone on, that's continued to be the case. So first, I remember being told that we just needed to be patient, that everybody now understood that this was unfair, women shouldn't be um, treated less equally to men, it wasn't true, it wasn't right, biology wasn't destiny, and women were going to get an education, and we were going to start moving our food system. And so eventually, we would be equal. We would be, you have equal access to being presidents and leaders and business leaders, and we just had to be patient that progress on the equality front was inevitable, but it took time. But as we all know, I mean, I think we probably all know, um, that this really just didn't happen. That in recent years, in fact, things have arguably been going backwards, um, and the gender pay gap and female representation in government and in business certainly hasn't expanded and, and has really gone backwards. We were also told that we were our own worst enemies, that women need to have the confidence, and that was what we lacked, um, to do what men do, to just ask for more money and to ask for the promotions that we deserved. And if we did this, just like men, we would get them. And so there was a lot of um, time went in to try to build our confidence because all we needed to do was feel that confidence, get out there, ask for what we deserved, and bang, we would get it. A few years ago, I became so frustrated with the absence of female experts on the dais. And this, of course, is such a lovely example of four women, but this is not usually what you see. Um, and the excuse that would come back to you when you would complain about it, which was that you just simply couldn't find any women willing to get up on the dais, we just weren't willing to speak, that along with Catherine Devaney and Jane Carrow, I founded a speaker site called No Chicks, No Excuses. Since the site's launch, countless women have contacted me to be listed, and in fact, became so overwhelming I had to hand it over to somebody else because I couldn't manage the flood of women who were desperate to be put on this site and, and put themselves up to, to be speakers. Um, I've not noticed any uptick in female speakers, I should say, but I haven't done any studies about it either. 
But since I launched um, No Chicks, No Excuses, I certainly have been privy to a lot of excuses. <laughs> so whenever I rock up to something and it's an all-male panel bar me, I certainly get told all the reasons why that's the case. So not all that long ago, a male organiser was quick to tell me that he tried and tried and tried to get a woman to participate in this panel, but none would say yes. He basically told me that women feel that they have to have a PhD to feel confident enough to talk about a subject. But in contrast, he said that when he rang up men, they would go, oh, look, I don't really know much about it, but uh, sure, why not? I'll give it a go. And again, this was put up as the reason, you know, that we lack confidence and that all we needed to do was stop thinking we needed to have a PhD and just get up on the dais, because of course the calls, you know, our phones were ringing off the hook, and the problem was when, when we were being run, we were just saying no. In the last few years, we've returned to the explanatory mechanism of bias, but this time we're focusing on unconscious bias. So we're not talking about the overt sort anymore, we're talking about things that are unconscious. So what is unconscious bias? Unconscious bias refers to a bias that we are unaware of and which happens outside of our control. It's a bias that happens automatically and is triggered by our brain making quick judgments and assessments of people and situations. And the judgments we make are influenced by our background, cultural environment, and personal experiences. Now the advantage of unconscious bias as an explanation is that it takes motive out of the discussion. This stops the bad feeling that can arise between the genders when women feel that men are purposefully trying to keep them down. And because neither the intention nor even the consciousness that bias is there, men get defensive and feel quite falsely accused. Such bad feeling is a particular problem when you believe, as many feminists do, and I certainly do, that men are necessary allies in the fight for gender equality. In addition, when we take motive out of the game, it helps to explain how gender stereotypes don't just lead some men to discriminate against women, but can also lead to some women discriminating against other women or to unconsciously limit ourselves. So we too hold unconscious bias about women and men, and we go about um, discriminating against other women. And this is a fact that we've known for a long time and women have found quite frustrating, and this is a theory that helps us to explain why that's happening. We also now have some very sophisticated studies that put pay to the blame the victim explanations of why women earn less, don't rise as high, and labor under inferior conditions, and don't end up on the dais when it's time to choose speakers. Yes, it's true that women are less likely to negotiate their salaries, working conditions, or promotions. This is indeed true. We do do this less. We don't go out and drive a hard bargain when we get to our starting salaries, and that you know ends up starting us often less than the males, and over time, that goes on, and, and, and so the argument goes. But here's something interesting. The reason that we don't do that, that we don't negotiate our starting salaries, our working conditions, or our promotion, is not so much that we lack confidence, or if we do, it's because we lack confidence for a very good reason. It turns out that women have a very sound understanding of the realities of the social and employment world in which we operate. We believe correctly as a series of studies by researchers from Harvard and Carnegie Mellon show that both male and female decision makers will respond negatively to any attempt to improve how we work or what we earn. So what that means is, what we've found is, if we go into a negotiation, if we're, you know, at say the second interview for a job and we say what we'd like is a higher starting salary, we'd like 
you know, only to start in a couple of weeks because we've got a holiday and we'd like to have every alternate Tuesday off because we look after our child, often what that does mean is we don't get the job. And the reason we don't do it is because we know that. Interestingly, female decision makers respond as badly when the negotiator is male. So if you're a female decision maker and a male actually says, I want more money and I want better working conditions, you don't like that either. You just don't like, if you're a female decision maker, anyone trying to make a better fist of it at the start. But if you're a male, and most of the decision makers are male, they only feel badly about it when women do it. And they only penalize women. Now that doesn't mean that when a male starts to do that negotiation, he necessarily gets his way with a male decision maker, but he also doesn't get penalized. The male decision maker doesn't think, gee, you've got a lot of cheek. But if it's a woman, and especially if she's trying to negotiate more money, he does have a problem with it, and he does penalize her. And the penalization is often that she doesn't get the job. So we like confidence, but we've got good reason. These studies reminded me of something I learned years ago about the workings of power in a world in which people of color, women, and children, just as a few examples, are oppressed. It is the oppressed who must keep their eyes open and pay attention to the habits of the powerful. They must do this to understand how the powerful operate and how the powerful think. Knowing and understanding and using this insight to modify one's own behaviors to keep clear of trouble, to avoid antagonizing the bear, is the main power that the powers actually have. Thus, in a racist society, black people well understand and can describe the ways of white people but white people often have very little understanding of black people. This reality was recently summed up by a black person when he said, if you have to ask what white privilege is, then you have it. All this returns us to the theme of approval in Elizabeth's work and the sophisticated way that Elizabeth attempts to make sense of how women's search for approval has shaped women's lives and the relationships we have with others and with ourselves. The results of these studies and the work on unconscious bias allows us to question whether the problem is that women are overly focused on seeking the approval of others, or whether the real problem is that women live in a world where approval-seeking is what any woman who wants to get ahead must do. Um, that was really interesting. <laughs> um, my daughter turned uh, 10 a few weeks ago and uh, she told me uh, she wanted to give a speech at her party. Um, her first draft started like this. Yo dudes, welcome to my 10th birthday party. Here are three things I'd like to do now I'm 10. One, get gender equality. <laughs> That's when I told her to stop and go back and rewrite that sentence without all the sociological jargon in it. <laughs> when she returned, it said, I would like to make sure boys and girls are equal, so when I go to the library, I'm not told I can't borrow a book because it's a boy's book. My daughter is part of the net generation, born in the 21st century, finding her place in a rapidly changing technological landscape, but clearly aware that there are still ancient battles to be fought. 
The other two things she wanted to do, just in case you're interested, <laughs> were number two, make sure everyone has a house to live in, and number three, ban homework forever. <laughs> <laughs> When I asked her this morning, do you think women seek approval from men, her answer was, I hope not. I think we need to be clear. As humans, we all seek approval from others because we want to be part of that tribe. It's how we get validation. We also seek approval from our parents, but I think if you look deeply enough, uh, you'll find that what you're actually seeking there is love. It's their love. Again, it's about validation. On the issue of seeking approval from the other gender, women seek the approval of men to a much greater extent than men seek the approval of women. And yes, it's about validation. Now we could ask, whose fault is that? Or we could ask, who has the power to change this situation? I want to deal with the second question. We can all sit around talking about how the socialization of women since the year dot has made us who we are. But I've had those conversations many times over a very long period of time. I am so bored with them. I'm so bored. We know men are the problem. We know they've got to change. And we know they're digging in their heels because their mindset is not changing fast enough. Quite frankly, I'm sick of waiting for them. <laughs> and I don't buy into the idea that we have to take men along with us, include them in the journey, in the conversation. As a group, they've shown they are unreliable as agents of change in women's lives. But there are things women can do. And most importantly, they must be aware that they are not equal to men and that they still seek men's approval. Yes. I'm talking to all those young women out there who think that the word feminist is redundant. Sorry, girls. 18% gender pay gap, inadequate childcare, inflexible employers, poor representation in Parliament and at board level, blah, blah, blah. I know you've heard it all before. And that's just Western countries. You only have to listen to Donald Trump to know that this fight... Yeah, the fight that started in the 70s is not over yet. Women seek approval from men through the clothes they wear, the makeup that they wear, by aiming to be the perfect wife, by thinking that the fastest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. We all know that the fastest way to a man's heart is through his chest. <laughs> Sorry, I just... <laughs> when I see women tottering around in those ridiculous, super high-heeled shoes that they're clearly not comfortable in, I see a powerful symbol of that group of women who have allowed men to make fools of them. When I see women obsessing over body image, I feel angry. And by the way, I'm not talking about anorexia because that is a mental disorder. When women don't push back, when they don't speak up, when they don't lean in, or whatever you want to call it, we all take one step back. I think men know we don't need their approval. It's women who need convincing. We simply don't need to be appealing to men. 
the fact that the, in fact, the idea that feminism needs to be appealing to men or that men should be central to its progress are anti-feminist ideas in themselves. If you want men to change their mindset, and that is what we're trying to achieve here, we women have to show each other that we too are ready to change our mindset. It's not easy, I know that, because we're fighting centuries of subjugation in the East and the West. But we do at least have to be aware of it. I've been seeking approval from men all my life because that's how I was brought up in an Indian family living in London where the expectation was that I will dress modestly at all times, marry whom my father chose for me, enter a profession that allowed me to have children and look after my husband and his parents. I'm afraid I didn't do any of those things because I actively chose to reject them. I don't do subjugation. <laughs> my mum in turn born in India 70 years ago yeah 70 years ago uh, was brought up to believe she must marry who she was told to cover her head in the presence of men be pious be a good cook dress modestly speak softly tie her hair back never look at her father directly in the eye adopt a subservient stance in the presence of menfolk, etc., etc. You know the rest. She did all of those things. Duty, obligation, service, and modesty. These are, you know, many women in the East are programmed like that. In the West, some women still see marriage as the pinnacle of validation. So profound and widespread has been the uh, so socialization of women in the East and the West that it is seared into a really ancient part of their cerebellum, that they actually are not the decision makers. They are not the influencers, nor the adjudicators, and not the people who really matter. It's understandable how eventually they become so crushed they not only seek approval from their parents, but approval from everyone. Their bosses, their friends, their boyfriends, their husbands, and even their children. And without that approval, they deem themselves to be, well, worthless. And this seeking of approval crosses borders, cultures, and ethnicity. We have to be aware of what is happening here we have to ask ourselves, what part are women playing in changing the way women are socialized? I find it really hard not to seek the approval of men. It's how I was brainwashed. But I am aware of it, and I do push back against it. And my way of pushing back uh, against it is in the way I choose to raise my daughter, and the same would apply if I had a son. In the past 10 years, whenever my daughter said she liked pink, I said pink is good, but punk is better. <laughs> and when she said, I want to be a teacher, I said, 
That's a great profession to choose. But have you thought about being a computer engineer? And when she tells me she's really into Taylor Swift, I say, yes, she's really talented. And what do you think about Bruno Mars and Mark Ronson? These are trifling examples in themselves. But the point I'm trying to make is that it's in the detail of our daily lives. I spend a lot of time offering my daughter alternatives. I see that as the best way to challenge the ideas she picks up at school, from TV, in books, from her friends, from her teachers, from adverts, from magazines, from the internet, and through the way we use the English language. I alone can't change men's mindsets. I alone can't change the way women are. But I can change me, set in my ways though I am. And I can influence the next generation by guiding my daughter. So I will do everything in my power to make sure that girls like my daughter do not grow up seeking the approval of men. In my family, it has taken at least two generations to start the process of changing the lives of women that I'm related to. My daughter's life should not have to be another tiny incremental step towards equality. And that's what motivates me to do whatever I can to set her free. This is a tough act to follow. Um, I'm used to being the sort of radical pariah on the end of one of these panels, so this is a really nice change. I'm going to sound mild. This is brilliant. Um, so uh, I, got, I got given the question of things improved in terms of women my age. Um, so I'm at the older end of the dreaded Gen Y that's forever being agonised over in the mainstream media, in case you're wondering. Um, and I suppose the short and very unsatisfactory answer to that question of have things improved is yes and no. Uh, in some overt ways, it does feel like things have improved compared to decades ago, although, of course, you can only imagine what it would have been like. Um, I think most women my age expect to work, for example, without having to ask permission from a male partner first. Uh, in Australia, certainly, we've benefited to some degree from laws for equal pay, protections from sexual harassment, and a gradual acceptance that marital rape is a real thing. Um, but even all those structural law changes could be seen as asking permission from a, a fundamentally male state. But I think we've also had recent breakthroughs that even 10 years ago, which was around about when I first became involved in feminism, um, I didn't really know if I would even see in my lifetime. If you'd told me in the early 2000s that I'd lived to see an anti-domestic violence campaign and named Australian of the Year, uh, I probably wouldn't have believed you. Uh, I think I would have been sceptical too about the prospect of a Royal Commission into family violence, and I use that in inverted commas because as a brief aside, I hate, hate, hate the terms domestic violence and family violence. These have become kind of acceptable, non-confrontational ways about talking about what is fundamentally by and large men's violence against women and children. Um, we can't address these issues if we refuse to name the perpetrators of this violence, and that in itself I think is still a very broad example of the need for male approval, that we've had to make these things palatable in some way, 
um, so as not to name men as the perpetrators of this violence. This kind of this message of don't upset men too much or they might not be nice to us. And that, I think, is a message that hasn't really changed. I think the way the message is delivered is different and has morphed over time. It may even be more subtle, but it's fundamentally still there. Indeed, thinking about this exhibition, um, after I came to see it a couple of weeks ago, it's kind of stayed with me. I think it's very powerful. Uh, it made me think about a number of key feminist ideas. I'm an academic, so I'm going to fall back on other people's ideas constantly. Um, and, and the first one was a really famous quote from, from Catherine McKinnon. And in Towards a Feminist Theory of the State, she says, All women live in sexual objectification the way fish live in water. Given the statistical realities, all women live all the time under a shadow of the threat of sexual abuse. The question is, what can life as a woman mean? What can sex mean in a rape culture? And I've always been really drawn to her fish-in-water metaphor as a way of describing that, that patriarchy is so all-pervasive as to be almost invisible. If we're swimming around in it all the time, we often forget it's there. And it was that quote that came back to me walking through the He Loves Me, He Loves Me Not panels um, that constant questioning, that constant need for male approval is pervasive and a repetitive part of everyday life for women living in heteropatriarchy. And it's in this sense, in terms of the meaning of, of male power and heterosexuality, that I think, to a degree at least, things are potentially worse for women of my age. I've grown up with the complete normalisation of pornography, for example. Um, there's a few people who know me in the audience who are probably going to be horrified at this knowing me now, but my teenage self was co so co-opted by the porn industry propaganda that I was receiving that at 17 I desperately wanted to go out and buy a Playboy Bunny t-shirt that I was very proud of, um, and I can't imagine kind of something that screams more need for male approval than wearing something that Hugh Hefner wanted women to wear. Um, uh, and indeed, women of my age seem to accept that they will have partners who watch pornography on a regular or semi-regular basis. For heterosexual women younger than me, my undergraduate students, for example, there's a mix of resignation and fury, I think fortunately on the fury front, uh, about the fact that they're dating men who've watched often violent pornography since before their adolescence. So I think the dominant cultural narratives about heterosexuality and about women's assumed need for a male partner and expectations about how women should look and act in heterosexual sex are just as problematic, if not more so, than they have been in recent decades past. Uh, I think we still suffer terribly from the male in the head. Um, and that's one of the other concepts that kept kind of swirling around my head when thinking about this exhibition and the questions we were, we were given here tonight. That constant questioning and internalised need for male approval in terms of performing heterosexuality, I think, was brilliantly described by a bunch of English feminist scholars as male in the head in their study of why heterosexual Brits were falling behind in safe sex practices in the 1990s. At the outset of their final report, the researchers note their initial belief that they would find these opposing forces of masculinity and femininity sort of colliding um, in heterosexual negotiations around safe sex. And instead, they concluded that, and I'm going to quote again here, heterosexuality is not as it appears to be masculinity and femininity in opposition. It is masculinity. Within this masculine heterosexuality, women's desires and the possibility of female resistance are potentially unruly forces to be disciplined and controlled, if necessary, by violence. In the, end, they talk, in the end, they talk about the need to understand the male in the head as the surveillance power of male-dominated and institutionalised heterosexuality as opposed to the man in the bed of everyday experience. And I think we are still very much socialised to carry around a male in the head if most, if not at all, all times. 
and that brings me to the final idea that I kept coming back to while mulling over my thoughts uh, from the exhibition, and that was D. Graham's notion of loving to survive. Um, her book by that title is an incredibly powerful read. And basically she puts forward the idea um, of societal Stockholm Syndrome. So the basic idea of societal, stock, of societal sorry, of Stockholm Syndrome, the initial idea of Stockholm Syndrome being that victims can form emotional bonds or even potentially fall in love with their abusers, um, particularly in captive situations, and that victims tend to overemphasise any signs of kindness, misinterpreting them as a display of love from their captor. Graham extrapolates this out to a cultural level. Uh, like McKinnon, she says, all women live in a society where there's a very real threat of sexual violence, and that violence is most likely to be perpetrated against them by a current or former partner. But if all heterosexual women walked around with that knowledge at the forefront of our minds every day, could we actually get through day-to-day life? Could I enter into a new relationship if on every date I thought, oh goody, am I interviewing my potential next rapist? Could I go home to the relationship I'm currently in and lie in bed at night thinking this man is probably the most likely man in my life to rape me? In this situation of fundamental power imbalance, Graham says women as a class love men as a class as a kind of unconscious survival strategy. That like hostages who work to placate their captors, women work to please men, largely through the performance of femininity. And that stereotypically feminine behaviour is basically a set of small survival strategies. What appeals to me on one level about this analysis, as bleak as I think it is, is that it's structural. It's not about blaming individual women for their circumstances or weighing up individual choices about good or bad heterosexual relationships. It's about the structure of heterosexuality itself, how it's underpinned by male power and how the need for male approval is not an issue of the personal failing of women. And even though that, too, I think is pretty bleak, um, there's something about really confronting that bleakness and both the monotony and embeddedness of women's need for men's love that gives me hope. Because we can't move forward if we can't even admit where we are. So I did kind of want to finish on a hopeful note, um, and I quite like using this quote too, because it's from Andrew Dworkin, who is often maligned as the epitome of a man-hating feminist. Yet I think if you actually read her works, she had a lot of faith in men and men's ability to change. Um, and a lot of faith that the dominant construction of heterosexuality could change for the better. These things aren't essential, they're not biologically determined, uh, that social movements can have some impact. And in one of her most famous works, Intercourse, she says, visions of a humane sensuality based in equality are the aspiration of women, and even the nightmare of sexual inferiority does not seem to kill them. They're not searching analyses, they're deep, humane dreams that repudiate the rapist as the final arbiter of reality. They are an underground resistance to both inferiority and brutality, visions that sustain life and further endurance. And as I see what looks to be a new wave of feminist activism breaking at various places across the globe, um, I really hope that that underground resistance is growing again. Um, so I've been made the um, bossy boots in terms of questions, um, and so what's going to happen is we've got a um, microphone fairy who's going to um, give the microphone to that first brave person who can raise their hand and ask the first question, um, and then we can get going. Nobody's got a question. Is that <laughs> Oh, there we go. There we go. Thanks, that was terrific. Um, I suppose that uh, 
to function like this kind of contradiction, although we're socially encouraged to seek approval, it seems to me like also we shouldn't want to seek approval. So I wonder if that's part of what's preventing us from coming to consciousness that we are in fact doing that, and so preventing us from not doing that anymore. Hmm. Okay, does somebody want to comment on that? I think, um, I mean, the notion of approval as in, you know, living in society, obviously we all want approval as the tribe, I think someone mentioned. I think the difference is that um, it's not necessary to want that much approval, and I think it's a fine line between just approval of, you know, don't go through the red light, don't sort of like, you know, don't drive on the bike track is okay because you want approval of society. But I think... um, the issue is that it's um, affecting the way women see themselves and that we don't really need to go that far into that approval side of it. So what was the question again, actually? I, I was more thinking that it seems like it's not OK um, for us to be seen or to want to see ourselves as seeking approval. There's something undignified about that. At the same time, we're actually being encouraged implicitly to do that. And is that part of what's going on um, in us not seeing ourselves as doing that. Like, is that why we say things like, oh, I'm not doing it for him, I'm doing it for me? Yeah, the kind of choice narrative. Sorry, yeah. I just yeah. made yeah. that really bad. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, I, I think I understand it better what you're saying. I think that one of the things that's probably worth talking about is, and this, you know, takes on a little bit... Um, what we're saying, as you can tell, we don't, we don't all agree. Um, I guess I feel like there's a when you when you split male and female up the way that we have, you, you make them these binary opposites. So everything that a man is is what a woman isn't, and everything that a woman is is what a man isn't. And when you do that, it's quite oppressive, I think, to both men and women. Um, and one of the most radical things that happened to me as a feminist, and I was a very young and very fierce and very angry feminist is my brother thought this was completely hilarious when I had not one but two sons. Um, And he thought that that was going to really um, radicalise me and change my views about things. And he was right, it did. Um, Because when you have a child who is as yet, you know, unmarked, except for the marking you're about to do to them, and of course, you know, the minute children come into the world, they're, they're being acculturated. But nonetheless, you can see the sweetness of a child. Um, and you can see what happens when you raise a child in a way that's different. Um, and I guess I felt really pain, a lot of pain for my sons as they began to learn what masculinity was. Um, it was really awful to watch because my younger son, my oldest son, for instance, was very aesthetic and still is very aesthetic kind of a kid. Um, and he was very attracted to pink. Maybe it's just kids, they like pink. But in any case, he liked pink. And he very soon realised through being in Croatia that he wasn't really allowed to like pink um, and he wasn't allowed to wear any of the sparkly things that he was terribly, terribly attracted to. And so what he did was he started dressing me up. So he would come home and he would insist that I take home, take down my jewellery box and he would pull everything out and he would dress me up and say I was the most beauteous mummy in the world. And it was really painful because he didn't want me to wear all of those things. He wanted to wear all of those things, and he knew that the rules said that he couldn't. And again, it's kind of a trivial example, but those things were writ large over their lives in ways big and small. And so I guess I feel like it is the diabolical nature of defining men and women in such opposite ways 
that makes us extreme. So women then take on the extreme of, of approval seeking and men take on the extreme of, I don't need anybody, I'm independent, you know, I'm on my own, I make all my decisions on my own, I don't need you. And of course, those extremes are both false. And I do think that there is a, a way of um, bringing us back to something that's less extreme, although it's very complex because of the way that we've defined masculinity and femininity. But I think if we can recognise that they're oppressive for different reasons for both sexes, and I don't mean in any way to deny power, so I don't mean in any way to say, oh, you know, men are just as oppressed as women, but rather I think their oppression is quite different. I think be, being made a man is, is, is oppressing in a very different way. I think women need to understand our own oppression. I think we need to fight it. I think we need to search for power in the public space, which is where we're denied it. I think we need to question over-approval seeking. Um, but I also think men have their own um, oppressions, and I think one of the greatest oppressions of masculinity is that men are taught not to have the... They don't bond to each other, they don't do the consciousness raising, they don't speak with one another, they're supposed to be unitary and solitary. They don't have the language often. And so I feel like one of the things masculinity oppresses them about is the capacity to even articulate the way women do what our oppressions are. Um, I don't know if that's even remotely helpful, but I do think that's where the approval-seeking thing goes wrong because, of course, if we were just humans, we would all, to some degree, seek approval, it's just the extremity of it. No, I think that's very interesting about the, the separation of gender and I think one of the things that um, the feminist movement always um, pushed for was the breaking down of that yeah. distinction between yeah. the male and the female. I mean, we are all human and I think all the uh, current issues about gender and, you know, what is male, what is female and there's, you know, three different grades in between the extremes as well. I think that's actually how we're going to advance is to break down those distinct separations. And then there's no need to have this sort of obsession with the other half, so to speak, on both sides. Mm-hmm. Can I just briefly, Chenti, mm-hmm. what I think maybe, well, what it made me think of your, your question was how refreshing I, I found the exhibition in that, in that it has made me and everyone else know, confront very frankly, that approval-seeking that I think you're right, you know, you've probably run enough undergraduate tutorials yourself to have heard that I choose this, I do it for me. Um, it's kind of nice to be on a panel where everyone says, yes, I'm very aware of the pressures to seek male approval and I live in a patriarchal culture. Um, I, that's certainly not been my experience of generally being on these kind of things before. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think you have to acknowledge it to confront it and there is maybe a reluctance to It's not... When you, I'm guessing most women in this room have, have hit some point of feminist consciousness in their lives. It's not very pleasant initially. I think that I, I don't think anyone goes, oh yes, this is amazing. Initially, you know, you, you know, you kind of go, oh Jesus Christ, this is, <laughs> you know, this is pretty shit actually. This is what what I was raised to believe. This isn't what I was necessarily told was true. Um, and so I think it, I think there can be a reluctance to to admit to the position of of. Seeking male approval because yeah, it's not it's not very pleasant to have to confront. I guess. Next question. Really? Mm-hmm. You hungry? Okay. 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 There's somebody. Okay. And there's also one there. Another one. Um, you talked about um, on the 
Sorry. Megan? Yeah. Um, femininity as like um, a self-defense kind of mechanism to protect men and um, remain safe. Um, so how do we how do we remain safe while challenging those kind of you know um, kind of do you know what I'm I think I think so, like that it it's, it can be uh, sort of threatening to challenge that traditional femininity, or we risk certain retribution for for challenging traditional femininity. Is that sort of what you're yeah. talking about? Yeah. I think it's a really interesting idea because I haven't really considered that. Okay. Like, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it is. It is right, and I I think um, I mean it's a, it's very challenging. I find I find her ideas still very challenging, but but fascinating and, and insightful. Uh, and I guess it is the realisation, and, and this is driven at somewhat in the book too, that the idea that performing femininity right will keep you safe is a lie, and women don't get raped because they perform femininity badly, um, they don't get beaten because they perform femininity badly, it's a structure of power that creates that situation. Um, so I guess that that can be kind of freeing in a way. <laughs> it's still not very nice because then, okay, there's no strategy ideally to keep you safe, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think there are certainly times you, you risk um, retribution as, as well, quite overt retribution for breaking out of those gender norms. Um, but I guess you, you do have to recognise that staying in them isn't a safe place either. Um, and just like she says, the, you know, the, the captive thinking that their captor loves them is, is an illusion um, created to survive. And I guess it's the same thing. We, we, I think are raised to believe, you know, I mean, we still get these messages, right, about if you, did, if you don't wear the short skirt, if you don't drink, if you don't go out late at night, if you don't hang out with the wrong boys, it won't happen to you. Um, and I think we are working towards a greater consciousness of that just being totally wrong. Uh, you know, it's still very incremental, it's still very slow. Um, but I suppose, yeah, it maybe takes us down an even bleaker path in that there is no perfect solution to, to safety until you've ended the, the power structures that, that cause violence against women in the first place. Yeah, I think I think in fact what we what we we believe we know, and you know, knowledge is always evolving, is that equality is actually one of the best protectors against violence. And femininity is not about asserting equality; it's quite the opposite. So I think that there is actually kind of a nice coincidence of rejecting femininity and establishing a more equal relationship and being safer. I think there was a woman here in red. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, I don't know if it's a question, just, it's just I'm thinking, thinking. Um, I really like the, the part when um, um, say, you say talking about the fact that uh, basically women don't uh, ask for promotion because they know there is going to be some problems. And because just right now what's interesting in my personal case, I just arrived in Australia and I just said the PhD. And I'm just back in the academics because I've, been, uh, I've done other stuff in between, and it really strikes me. And with this last week, the some behaviors of men, because the way I look, and like old men, the way they behave, or how I see people making a prothesis. I have a quantitative background, and how they make a prothesis on the fact that I probably am doing some uh, soft science, and all these issues <laughs> coming and everything. Um, but it's just like, what I feel like right now in the group where I am, it's like, um, like so when you talk about seek, like seeking uh, approval or 
um, lack of confidence and everything, like I have all that, like any woman. But I also have the feeling more and more these days that whatever I may do, it's never going to be enough. Mm. Like somehow, I don't know how to say that to me, but somehow the rules are, are biased from the beginning. And one of the options, I know how to make things simpler, it's like more or less to behave more like a man. Like um, the way I should talk, the way I should behave, and somehow I'm also tired of that. I just would like to be the way I am, mm. and a bit messy and everything. And it's just, I don't really know how to deal with that, because we also say like if we want things to move, we need women that go up and up, and for that you need somehow to sacrifice and adapt to the way it is, and somehow it's upset me because you, I mean, you, you lose if you're just already behaving like a man or anything, it's that in you that you're, yeah, I don't know if I'm clear or not, but that's more or less what I'm You're completely, you're speaking completely in total sense, and it is really confusing, and some of the things, so when I thought about what I was going to say, thought about whether or not I was going to talk about those studies, because they're dark. They're really dark, they're dark studies. It would be a lot easier, it's a lot more empowering for the problem to be ours. It's actually more empowering to say, you know what the problem is? We lack confidence. All we need is some confidence-boosting lessons. We all just need together, be more assertive. It's in our hands. And bang, we're going to fix it. And you're right, we need to feel that way to fight. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not empowering to say to people, actually, it's really complicated. But on the other hand, I do think it is a little bit empowering to realize that our intuitions about things are not coming out of nowhere. So the fact that we may not demonstrate confidence in certain situations where we may not ask for a salary rise, instead of us feeling like, oh, it's all our fault, you know, the reason we don't have a salary rise is because we didn't ask and all we had to do was ask. So there is a kind of an empowerment in knowing this is really messy, it's really complicated, and it's not clear what the right steps are. So you're confused, everyone's confused. You know, it's not clear what the right answers are. There is something, and I think Elizabeth is absolutely right, there is some truth in coming to your own sort of understanding of what you do, why you do it, and how much you feel like going on to do it. And then there's some complexity around trying to work out what the real-world consequences of that might be. And maybe you'll want to take them in some situations, and maybe you won't want to take them in others. And I don't think you need to feel, I guess my only sense of it is you don't need to feel like you've let down the sisterhood and you failed, you know, the quest for equality, and if you don't make the brave move every second, you're to blame when we don't go forward. You know, I think this is a... This is an incremental journey, and sometimes we need to make tactical moves, sometimes we need to retreat a few steps because before we can go forward. So I do think we're obliged ultimately as women to get involved, do something, try to make the world a better place for Sushi's daughter and all the other girls that are coming up. But not, not every second of the day, you know, and I do think there is something in acknowledging that we're living in a sexist world, we're realising that, we're trying to make the best move kind of overall from A to B and on some days it might be to go to the left you know and some days it might be to step back and then move forward I don't know if that's helpful can I just say I think it is empowering to challenge um, the, the framework and challenge the way things are that does make you feel empowered but I think that in the West we're kind of lucky because to challenge the system 
uh, doesn't have repercussions uh, that result in us dying. Okay. Mostly. Uh, mostly, yes, mostly. Um, uh, I think in other countries, if you sort of challenge the system, you might feel empowered for a while, but then you might get killed as well. You might get doused in kerosene and satellite in the kitchen, uh, which is how some countries deal with women who speak up and try and do what they want to do. In my case, when you know I spoke out and told my dad I didn't want an arranged marriage, for example, uh, that resulted in my family kind of more or less disconnecting from me for many, many years. So there are repercussions uh, from uh, risking, um, you know, taking the risk of challenging the system. Um, but I always think that in the West we're really lucky because there are so many avenues through which we can challenge the system and still be okay, you know. Um, and I think that uh, sometimes women should challenge it more than they do. Um, so, and, but I know it's hard, you know, it is hard to go in and ask for a pay rise and all the rest of it. I mean, perhaps it's easy for me to say this, but I work in a cutthroat, male-dominated industry. And so I have to find a way around because it's part of my daily survival because if I don't, you know, so I sometimes I think, well, okay, this is how I've tried to deal with things that work, and I wish more women gave it a go, um, you know. Well, totally, if you feel part of something, isn't it? It's very hard to do it on your own, like it's as an individual. So it helps yeah. if you feel part of a movement and that you have some agreement, I think, with other, other women about what you're trying to achieve and, and that you can support each other in that challenging and... That's right. I mean, sorry, can I just give you an example? Every morning I have to go into a conference on a round table which has about 12 men sitting there. And I have to go there and do my bit as the opinion editor. They're all there, business editor, whoever. Um, and, and when I come up to the table, these men are sort of sitting next to each other and I always join them at a later point in the conference. And when I pull my chair up like this and try and get into a gap, they don't move, okay? They just sit there with their man-spread thing. And they don't let me in. And it really, really pisses me off. Um, and I feel crushed every time they do it. So I've got to the point where I come up to the table now and I go... <coughs> <coughs> and I do this. And that is the only way that they kind of... Pull their chairs aside to, oh, yeah, she's here now. Yeah. Now, that's just a small challenge to the system, okay? But, you know, if you don't do it like that, you don't get anywhere. Can I get back to what you're saying? There's power in numbers and there's power in reading feminist literature and knowing that there's other women out there. Um, you'll be defeated if you're on your own. But to know that there are other, um, you know, there's incredible um, writers and politicians and artists and, and just everyday women who are already doing all these things and if you can link into that group that's what gives you the strength. I mean women already are confident but we get debilitated sometimes when you're on your own and you, fight, you feel like you're fighting the battle single-handedly sometimes but then when you read a book or you go and talk to other women and you actually can express all these problems that, that you face, that's what gives you the strength and the confidence. 
I mean, I think we're in a revolution, really. I think if say the last 20th century and possibly this century, they might define it as this century where women not only got the vote in, you know, 1912 or whenever it was, but also um, that was just the beginning, and that was 100 years ago. And it's going to take, you know, it's already 100 years and we're all, you know, exhausted by it. But at the same time, um, it is a revolution. It's a social revolution. And revolutions need armies. You have to stick together. You know, one of the, the first things anyone will try and do to any uh, woman who stands up is try to isolate you, you know, make you feel like you're an idiot or you're just being silly. But when you've got that backup of knowing that there are, you know, teams of other women who think the same way as you do, that's what gives you that confidence. How do you how do you deal with it though when um, the, you know there are not women there. who don't back you and well, who actively yes. uh, undermine you and criticise you because they're there they're there yeah. they're definitely there and that's what can be you know in a sense more debilitating than um, than say like a, a male or um, the authority um, but in the end from my experience all those women who used to sort of you know try to bring you down actually never did. Um, and so they're there, but I don't think they have that much power. It's not, not as much power as the women who are changing society. So I just think you have to stick together and find those like minds. And even, you know, like I was, um, we've all been, you know, the first woman who was in a particular field or um, were doing something, and it is hard, but you have that backup by just knowing that you're, um, you know, you're not alone. You're alone in the conference room, but you're not alone in the sense of that you know what's right and wrong and you have the confidence to know what's going on and you know how to sort of deal with it. And well, you can also seek assistance. So I guess I'm thinking of a particular case, which is the case that I was thinking of when I wrote this speech. And this was of a woman who um, did try to negotiate her initial pay packet. So she was about to get hired in academia. This was academia. Um, and she put in what she thought, you know, they offered her the job and she said, yeah, that's great, but what I'd like to do is this and this and pretty much what I gave you the example of. She wanted more money, she wanted different kind of start time, all that sort of thing. And they just sent her back an email and went, no, actually, thanks very much. And what did she do? Why do I know this story? Well, because she went to the New Yorker and she put it in the paper and I'm sure she got a lot of solidarity and support through that. So she lost the job, she didn't do anything wrong. And she certainly would have got through going public around it, um, you know, validation around those things. And I would hope that maybe even somebody else might have offered her a job. Obviously, I kind of don't know the end of that story. But I guess all I was saying was one of the things you can do and that I, you know, these guys may disagree with me, but this is definitely what I think. I think it's a tactical thing. It's a long fight. We're in it from the day of our birth until we die. And that is a long fight. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry, but we are. And we've got to conserve. We've got to conserve energy. You've got to see it as a kind of, ultimately, you know, in 10 years' time, I want to get here, and I want to have done this, and I want to have joined a group, and I want to do this. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I think you need to act tactically. And what you might decide, look, I'm just going to get this job. Because once I'm in this job, I'm going to make sure that I hire a whole bunch of female, you know, research assistants. I'm going to try to get up to the top. I'm going to, you know, I've got other plans, bigger fish to fry. And today, I don't have to fight. Today, I'm just going to do what I know is going to get me this job and get me this offer firmed up. And I don't think there's anything to be ashamed about that. 
I think you got it it is a long fight. I mean, even for my mother's generation, she couldn't articulate what it actually was. But I certainly picked it up from her generation that they felt, um, you know, they had jobs during the, the war years and then as soon as um, the 50s and 60s, there was kind of like a backlash and they were sort of seen as a you know, lesser person and pushed back into the home. They were miserable. I certainly picked that up from my mother. And I hope that my son and daughter are picking up from me. I'm the second wave and I don't mince words with them and they know exactly uh, what's going on as well. So in the space of one generation, you know, we've got another generation coming up now who are, it's still difficult, there's still layers and layers and layers of things to get through, but we've got through some of them already. Um, Very simple things, you know, even the thing that used to really piss me off so much was being Mrs. Miss... Um, and every time we go there, and I can't understand why we, we're still not Ms. And it was a, it became a battleground for me. Where every time I rang up a plumber, I'd go to the teller. They'd ask me to fill out the form, Miss or Mrs. And I would purposely, for years, say, no, it's Ms. They go, what? Ms. Ms. They go, what? Oh, Ms. No, Ms. Why do you need to know if I'm married or single? I'm just female. They go. Oh. And now it's you know quite a lot. It's not quite there yet. You still have Mister, Mrs, Miss, or Ms. We've got three choices. But even something as simple as that, and they used to make out like I was crazy because who cares? And other women would also say, who cares? You know, I'm Mrs. Someone. Um, but it does make a difference. In fact, the ultimate thing would be not to be male, not to be Mister or Ms. Basically, we should be able to fill up a form one day, and you just are. A person. So even something as, as trivial and well simple, it's not trivial, it changes the way in the space of my life everyone gets it now. You know, it was actually there was such resistance to something like that. And it's one advantage of being older, isn't it, that you get you the longer view. And so I think it's really important that it at younger age you see the things that are wrong and you want to change them because that's the only way things go forward. But I've written a novel um, about a woman living 2,000 years ago and it's kind of reminding me of what Sushi was saying because if you really want to know what it was like for women 2,000 years ago, you just have to look into other parts of the world because it's still like that. Um, And so when you take that long view of kind of how far we've come, that's not to say we shouldn't still be restless and angry about what we still have to do, but it is good every once in a while to have a perspective that says, you know what, it changes slowly and it's one step forward, two steps forward and one step back, and that's insanely frustrating, but it is moving. It is slowly, slowly chugging along. And you want to do your bit and raise daughters that are equally as you know, discontented and restless because that will move it the next step. But it is moving, and I think that is something to kind of cheer yourself with when you can cheer yourself with that and, uh, and it would be wonderful to end on that note but <laughs> <laughs> you weren't going to let me no, get away no I won't because no, it's no. excruciating and it's yes. too bloody slow and it's yes. been going on for so long and we can't just accept it's happening yeah. slowly it'll happen not overnight no, but it'll happen, happen. I know we have happen. to make it happen we and I just want to say one other thing that when you do get into positions of power, 
um, and a woman does get uh, the uh, chance to make decisions that affect lots of people and I'm very privileged in that I make the call on what gets run on the AGU's op-ed pages, okay? Um, and I do my very best to encourage women to write articles that I can run in the paper because I'm sick to death of seeing um, you know, middle-aged blokes writing on that page. Um, but having said that, there have been many times where I have run um, pieces about issues such as domestic violence or feminism or whatever it might be, issues that affect women, and I have been absolutely torn down by women for making those decisions. And I have been told that I shouldn't have run that uh, piece, that I should take it off the website, that I should do this, um, that I'm uh, putting up dangerous ideas. And my answer to that is no, I'm not going to stop because I'm going to keep on doing it. But it's not that, it's, it's so hard because when, when you get to a certain point, um, and you're able to make decisions that affect lots of people. It's not just men who kind of push you back. I found at this stage of my career, I get quite a lot of resistance from women too. If I'm not, if I'm not saying the things that one is expected to say when one one's a feminist, I, I'm, the sisterhood has been out to get me for years. I'm sure. But I think if you're getting, if you're getting <laughs> resistance, it means you're being you're doing successful. Something. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you have to expect <laughs> to have resistance. It means yeah. you're having an effect. Yeah. Can I just really briefly answer so. that? Briefly add. I just thought, uh, is it to just bring together some of what you're saying, I think, is that how important it is that we share these experiences and that in itself is an mm. act of resistance. Um, yeah. I've found it incredible to hear you say these things. I'm sure there are other women here who, who feel the same way. And that this in itself, even coming something like this and speaking openly in this way, in a way that um, you know, I know lots of women actually struggle with, is kind of a weak form of consciousness raising, I think. And thinking about it as I, 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 I don't find particularly useful. I think we have to think about it as we. And I think you have to be able to embrace your anger and move for change in order to make that happen as a group. I think if you put it all on your individual shoulders and think about it as individual decision-making, it will eat you up. Um, and so sharing those experiences and realising um, that in some ways you have a shared common condition, I think, can be very powerful. Okay. Well, I was supposed to wrap it up, but I can't do any better than that. Um, so I'm going to leave it at that, and I want to thank you all for coming tonight. And um, turn back to you, is that right? <laughs> Megan Tyler, Sushi Dust, Leslie Cadolf, Elizabeth Gard, thank you all very much for speaking as forthrightly as you have. I personally am looking forward to re-listening to this because there are so many, there are differences, significant differences. But each of you has given a particular perspective that is highly resonant for me at the stage that I am in my life. And having sat on boards and spent a reasonable time in South Asia, there are so many things that I feel that I need to reflect on. I think it's been a very rewarding evening. Ladies and gentlemen, can we thank our speakers again?